Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 15, being recorded on February 23rd, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I am doing terrific. I am out here in a beautiful Palm Desert for the Etail West Trade Show. Ah, awesome. I could not make it. We have a lot of folks at Chalvazer out there. Um, give me some highlights. Yeah, so there are a bunch of interesting speakers, the uh, CEO from Barnes & Noble, a CEO from uh, U.S. Auto, there's a great presentation from Lane Bryant. One trend that uh, we've talked about a little bit on this show that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, as is always the case in these shows, there's a lot of conversation about Amazon as the the great enemy and and how folks can compete with Amazon. Um, and, you know, there's there's guys up on stage suggesting that we all move off of AWS because that's somehow going to make them less competitive with us. And, you know, frankly, it... I felt like I heard from multiple CEOs at this show that tried to put Amazon in this pigeonhole of primarily being a dominant price competitor and their only competitive advantage is price. And so, you know, therefore their solution to competing with Amazon is to compete on customer experience or customer satisfaction or curation or all these other things. And, you know, as I'm hearing those things, I want to throw something at the stage because, you know, I feel like that's way oversimplifying how um, significant a competitor Amazon is. And I, I feel like they're excellent at a lot of categories of business that uh, that that these CEOs are are taking for granted. Yeah, yeah, I run into that a lot. Um, and a lot of people feel like, you know, sure, Amazon does compete on price, but what about the shipping infrastructure? The other one I don't think people bring up enough is selection. Amazon has over 400 million items available, you know, so, so I would challenge any of those CEOs to kind of think about that. And, and how do you, how do you deal with that level of selection? Because if, if you want it, pretty much Amazon's going to have it. Yep. And, and frankly, I, like, I, I don't think they do exclusively compete on price. I think they're very strategic about price and they compete on price when it's in their economic interest to do so. And they recapture margin, uh, when when the opportunity presents itself, and I think we have a couple news news items this week that sort of highlight that. Yeah, absolutely. What else is new at uh, Etail? One thing I did want to mention, not necessarily Etail news, getting a bunch of buzz this week is that Google has made some pretty fundamental changes to the the search results. And you know, this will probably not come as a surprise to any of our listeners, but but Google is still a very significant source of traffic to most e-commerce sites. Most e-commerce sites are getting in the sort of mid twenty percent of all of their revenue is coming from organic uh, search results in Google. And uh, this week, they announced that they would stop showing ads on the right hand side of the search results. Um, and, you know, superficially, you'd read that and go, oh, they're, they're decluttering the page. They already didn't have ads on the on their mobile page, you know, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And by the way, we're we're also going to add a fourth ad on top of the search results for highly commercial terms. And so, you know, traditionally, they would put up to three ads on top and then they'd put a few ads beside. And now what they're saying is they'll have three or four ads on top. They'll have no traditional uh, pay-per-click ads on the side, but they will still have the Google uh, product listing ads, which we've talked about on the show, are you know kind of the fundamental ad unit of e-commerce. Um, and so you you add all that up, and essentially what they're saying is we're adding more ads and we're making them more prominent on the page. And on many popular browser resolutions, four ads on top means you actually won't see an organic result above the fold. Um, and so this is potentially alarming news for some folks that rely on organic traffic. Like, I'm not sure it's a, an earth-changing um, thing in and of itself, but it's definitely something to be aware of. And then the sort of one-two punch is that Google also gave us a hint last week that they really don't like cluttering up the search results with too many what we call rich snippets. And rich snippets are another super important 
feature to e-commerce sites, that's the the visual stars that you might see on a on a product result that shows you what your rating is or pricing information or inventory information, like some of these extra pieces of information that you can embed in your product detail pages and then Google shows in the search results. Uh, when those extra bits of information show up, the click-through rate on that search result is much higher. So e-commerce sites are really careful to take advantage of all those rich NIP features. And Google has always decided how frequently to show it. And it seems like they're turning down the amount of rich nippets they, they show quite a bit. And uh, most alarmingly, the review, the number of stars has disappeared off a very significant number of organic search results in Google. And, you know, some people are frankly speculating that it's a mistake or a bug and that Google didn't intend to be so drastic because it is so, so prominent. But at the moment, uh, the organic search results are getting pushed further down the page and the the rich nippets are coming off of the page, which means that a lot of e-commerce sites are going to, you know, see a meaningful decrease in their organic search traffic. The um, Just so listeners kind of understand, how much do you think this really kind of is going to impact? Because we've kind of crossed over the 50% mobile. Um, mobile didn't already have, doesn't do four ads to the right. So is it more just the snippets will be on mobile? Yep. So the snippets absolutely affect both. And you know, the the rating snippets are huge. Traditionally, you'd see like 70% of all the click-through are going to be on that first organic result, and then, it you know, it exponentially goes down after each each additional result. But if the second result has rich snippets and the first result doesn't, the second result can actually get more click-through than the first. So that's a, a significant um, driver of click-through. Um, and if they're going to permanently turn off those those stars, that's... That's going to be a game changer, especially for for sites that really rely on organic traffic. And, you know, like the site you immediately think of that would have, you know, that this would have a prominent derogatory effect on is someone like an eBay. Yeah. Yeah, they've been in this kind of battle with eBay for a while, so it would not surprise me. Um, I know you always love to hear Amazon news, so I have a couple things there to share. Uh, I am, if you're a retail geek, I'm the Amazon Fulfillment Center geek, and they slipped in a little announcement uh, this week that they're building a, a smallish, uh, only a million square foot fulfillment center in the UK. And it's in Colville in Leicestershire, Leicestershire. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, along this lines where they're talking about job creations around fulfillment centers, they announced they're going to have 500 jobs uh, over three years there. Uh, and a fun fact, this is the 11th fulfillment center in the UK, which is about the same number of fulfillment centers that Walmart has in the US. So um, they're very dense in the UK with fulfillment centers. Uh, and what's interesting is most of the things they've done in the UK recently have been kind of forward deploying into London. Um, some of it's prime now type stuff or next same day delivery. So this is kind of a big new footprint for, for the UK. Um, also in fulfillment center news, um, and this didn't get a lot of press. So I don't know how well this is known out there. Uh, Amazon does um, the only area I am aware of where Amazon raises prices, everything else Amazon does lowers prices, especially if you do Amazon web services and that kind of thing. Um, is fulfillment by Amazon. Even the marketplace, they haven't really changed the prices since you know, since the beginning of time, I think. Um, so with FBA, what they constantly do is kind of tweak the economics. And there's a couple pieces in there. One of them is the per package fee that they charge for FBA. It's going to have an increase from, I think it's 30 cents to like a dollar seven. And on average, it looks like from a model I've seen that it'll be about 45 cents an item uh, increase. Uh, and then uh, that's one of the fees. The other one is, is called a storage fee. So if you have inventory at FBA, it doesn't sell after X days, I think it's 30. Then you get kind of this thump um, where they take the dimension of the volume of what you're, they're storing for you and have a fee and that's going up. Um, it's pennies. It's like two to four cents, but that's kind of times the volume that you have. So that's another one where they're constantly working the economic model to find, to incent sellers to have the right behavior of focusing on faster moving items that are in FBA. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, as a result of that and some comments that have kind of come out in management meetings, um, you know, what, what I've seen a couple of Wall Street analysts do is raise their fulfillment center build out this year from kind of 
middle uh, single digits like seven to kind of mid double digits like 15. So it's going to be interesting to see how that comes out. We already have this UK one, I believe is the first one that's been announced this year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what that looks like. Um, another thing I'm sure you probably saw is you've, you know, for those people that aren't on prime, you can still get the free shipping. It's, it's not two day shipping, but the free kind of the super saver, uh, five day shipping, uh, and they raised that uh, from thirty nine to ninety nine now. Uh, and then the okay, last you mean one is forty nine. Yeah, sorry, forty nine. Uh, the last piece was we had talked about this last week actually, and this is kind of how fast Amazon moves. Where there was news that Amazon may be considering doing private label in fashion. Uh, it turns out they are actually out with it. So, um, so they have some fashion private label brands out there, uh, and they're kind of a mouthful. Let me see if I can do this without stumbling through it. Franklin and Freeman, Franklin Tailored, James and Aaron, Lark and Row, North Eleven, Scout and Row, and Society New York. So what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven different kind of private label brands. Um, some of these are uh, men's apparel, some women's apparel. So, um, you know, very interesting that that there was rumors they were going to do this, and now it's actually out there. And you can search. Uh, we'll put it in the tidbits on the website. Uh, you can actually go search these brands and see what's available there, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that was a, a – Pretty big revelation to a lot of folks that were, you know, uh, following the rumors that they might do it. And then, you know, bam, surprise, there's already a ton of SKUs on the site uh, live. I look across all that Amazon news and my my two big takeaways are, you know, number one, raising the shipping threshold is interesting. Both Amazon shipping costs are a very meaningful portion of their business. They're like 12 percent of their revenue. Um, and so, you know, it certainly looks like like they're they're trying to make a profitability move by recovering a little more shipping fees. Um, but the big thing is this just seems like another very overt effort to push more people to prime. Um, and I, you know, I suspect it's going to be effective in doing that. And then raising the rates on the, on the FBA is interesting to me. You know, that's inevitable that as, as Amazon grows its business and, and has more strain on those fulfillment centers that that shelf space becomes more valuable right and so they they just yeah. need to charge more to to maximize it and you know i think if you're a seller like you probably shouldn't expect this to be the last uh, increase that you see there yeah when i talk to customers it's still very very competitive to any other 3pl and even even when you kind of look at a multi-year model you kind of you have to kind of look at it over two or three years because of the accounting uh, it ends up being relatively cheap compared to having your own fulfillment center. Yep, and I, and you get the huge huge kiss of of being Amazon Prime eligible. Yeah, and as they do Prime now and whatever else they're going to do around all these things, you ride along with all that investment, which is which is you know I don't know how you quantify that, but you know it's a pretty good value. Yeah, I think the one exception I've heard there is if if you're in a category that's predominantly oversized or unusual sized items that the economics get a little more challenging on FBA because the, the, you know, they really optimize the, the pricing model for, for their typical package size. Yeah. That drayage fee, because it's volumetric really, really hits you hard with oversized items. Yeah, absolutely. Did uh, Etsy have their earnings call this week? They did. It was actually today. Um, and a couple highlights uh, out of the call. Um, so, Etsy went public and had a great public offering and then has really struggled since then. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was mobile. So, so they had a huge challenge with mobile kind of accelerated right around their IPO. It's kind of like Facebook had the same problem, but Facebook recovered pretty quickly. Um, it looks like Etsy is seeing the light in the tunnel. They had um, pretty strong results. They exceeded expectations. Um, and then they actually came out and said, for the next three years, we're going to have 20 to 25% growth. So, so kind of pounding their chest, feeling pretty good about the future. And I think a lot of it is around, I think they feel like they've solved some of their mobile challenges. A couple of other interesting metrics, uh, 1.6 million sellers. I think that's interesting because Amazon reports 2 million sellers. So, uh, you know, Etsy definitely has uh, more seller density than an Amazon, but they're, because it's handmade, you would need that, right? Because uh, you can only hand make so many things. So, so I thought that was interesting. 24 million active buyers. Um, and uh, the Amazon question did come up on the call, and they the CEO said that we quote him, uh, and, and by this I mean Amazon has launched a competing category and seems to have Etsy in their crosshairs. 
Uh, the CEO at Etsy said, we have no reason to believe that any of the competitors are having an impact on us. Uh, and for the fourth quarter, Etsy had $750 million in GMV, which when you kind of look at their run rate, that was a, a, you know, a Q4, so it's not pretty fair to really do this. It's not going to be their run rate forever, but it's interesting to kind of think that they're at about a $3 billion run rate. And I remember in the early days of Etsy, um, you know, everyone in e-commerce was kind of like, God, what a niche, you know, this handmade stuff, you know, how maybe that gets to be $50 million. So, so it really kind of shows, I think what's interesting about Etsy is some of these things that seem like niches and they're going to be really small. When you look at them on a global basis, they can be pretty big, you know, $3 billion in homemade items uh, that, that blows me away. Uh, and they're anticipating it growing 20 to 25% for the next three years. So, so they see a path to four or $5 billion here, which I, I think is pretty fascinating. It's almost like pure play is not really in fact dead. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a good little kind of teaser for what's coming next. Well, let's get to the really exciting news. We have a guest today. That is true. It's episode 15. We're really settled in here at the Jason and Scott show. So we thought we'd uh, do something you and I had talked about way before episode one, which was have a special guest. Um, I think it's going to be a new tradition here on the Jason and Scott show if it goes well, and I'm sure it will. Uh, I'm thinking every third show or so we'll have a special guest to kind of help mix it up. And today we're really excited to have as our first guest, I don't want to put it out there yet. I'm going to build some suspense. Um, This is someone I've known probably for at least 12, if not 14 years. He's like one of the founding fathers of e-commerce. If there was a Thomas Jefferson or maybe Alexander Hamilton of e-commerce, that's who we have on the show today. So it's it's kind of a privilege to have someone that uh, has been in the industry for so long, but is still right on the cutting edge. Um, he started a company back in 98 that is one of the successful pure plays that's out there. Um, so if you haven't guessed yet, it is Peter Cobb from eBags. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. You guys are doing a great job. Thanks. We're, we're super excited to have you here. Um, I tried to keep your intro kind of brief. Um, to start out with, maybe tell us a little bit uh, about how you got into e-commerce. Um, you know, you're, you're at eBag still, and you've had a, an interesting journey there, so maybe a little highlight of that. Um, and let's just start with that, just to orient everyone that hasn't known you for 15 years on on what, what how, how you got into the industry and what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, so uh, you know, back in 1998. Well, prior to that, there were a couple of us that uh, worked at uh, Samsonite. I led the marketing for Samsonite, and a couple of us uh, uh, execs at at Samsonite saw what was going on with people buying books online, music, gardening equipment, uh, toys, etc. And um, and we just said somebody is going to own and uh, own and pioneer the category that we knew so much and love, so, uh, and that's luggage and handbags and backpacks, business cases, et cetera. And so we peeled off from Samsonite in 1998, actually kind of took the idea of my co-founder, John Nordmark. Uh, John took the idea to uh, the president of Samsonite and said, hey, why don't we buy some uh, some domains, you know, discountluggage.com and so forth. Back then, you could buy, uh, uh, just make up a domain and you could buy it. We own about 25, actually. And uh, and the president of Samsonite said, you know, I get email. I can't imagine anybody buying luggage from an email. Go back to your cubicle. And, uh, and John uh, called me up. And said, "Let's let's do this. I I think it's um, I think it's it's ripe." And both of us were into the internet and watching what was going on, and um, and that was in 1998. And so we uh, pulled it together. It was our own money uh, for uh, you know the first six months or so, and then we actually went kind of the traditional route with angels and and uh, friends and family. And, and raise some money from Silicon Valley and raise $30 million in 1999. And that's the last uh, time that we've raised money. Um, we haven't had any down rounds uh, since then. So it's been cash flow positive really since uh, 2002. Cool. The, um, so that's around the time when Amazon did their IPO. They were in 97, if I recall. Was that kind of a, an impetus for you? Was that kind of like the wake up where you said, hey, we need to do something. There's this bookstore going public. This is kind of going to be a thing. Well, it was, you know, 
I was just uh, explaining to somebody at eBags today about uh, the early days. There was cooking.com, garden.com, uh, mothernature.com, and Amazon was there. And, uh, you know, Amazon's really the only one that's alive today, eToys. And so uh, really it's kind of across the board we just looked at. It. I mean, back then Amazon was just books. And uh, we felt like in our space – uh, you know, right out of the gate, our, our model is somewhat unique from a lot of these guys in in that uh, we don't want to own product. Uh, our model is dropship, and you know, we knew at Samsonite, who's the global luggage leader, Samsonite seventy five percent of our orders uh, out the door were uh, three pieces or less. So if somebody owns a piece of luggage, Aspen luggage, they sell a garment bag. We were selling them one piece at a time from Samsonite. So we convinced Samsonite and many other brands to ship directly to our customers. Took a little bit of time and some arm twisting, but you know, here we are today with 70,000 different bags and accessory items from 700 brands. And obviously, you know, from a cash flow model, and that's like primary to why we're alive today is we. Uh, somebody buys on ebags.com, we get the cash immediately from the credit card uh, and pay our brands. It could be 45 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever's negotiated. So you get the positive float versus having a warehouse. I mean, imagine a warehouse with 70,000 individual units, but then you need to go 100, 500, 1,000 deep on each. It would be $100 million of inventory we'd have to, to to keep, and we wouldn't be alive today. So that was really one of the key decisions early on. And we were one of the first uh, to drop ship. And actually, it, it isn't that common. I mean, you have marketplaces today, which accomplish the same thing. So you guys start a company, you raise money, it's all exciting, you're driving into the future, and then the dot-com bubble burst. What what was that like? I, I lived through it, and it was quite painful. I, I can only imagine what it was like for you guys. And, you know, uh, what I recall is, like, people were going out of business left and right. You know, pets.com and all these other things were just flaming out. And you, you guys not only survived, but thrived. But what, what was that like getting to that nuclear winter? It was brutal. It was really tough because we, you're, one side of you is saying uh, we're homesteading. We need to claim our territory. You know, back then portals were so big, and you know, somebody like AOL could command a million dollars for something the size of a postage stamp, but you would own luggage or handbags on AOL, and 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 you just had to occupy that space because uh, so many people came through some of those old uh, portals, but you did burn through cash. And we, not only was it dot bomb, but for us, what really hurt, I think even more than dot bomb or as much was the nine 11 tragedy. Mm -hmm. Just didn't have a lot of people traveling uh, after that. We all were cocooning and, um, and you know, of course they shut down airlines and people just said, you know what, I'm just going to stay home for a while. And that really hurt, uh, hurt our sales. But, you know, from a positive standpoint, it really highlighted the fact that we need to diversify. We cannot survive by just being a luggage or even travel goods company. And that got us into backpacks for school, uh, women's handbags, uh, fashion accessories, I and mean, watches is a big category for us now, um, and branch out of business cases and business accessories. So in a way, it um, kind of poked us a little bit to say, okay, you're thinking too narrowly here. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been an amazing 17 years. And in fact, uh, just last week, we announced uh, we passed 25 million bags sold, uh, which is uh, which is really a nice accomplishment. We're really proud of that because, uh, uh, you know, if, if that was a, a chain of stores, uh, you know, it'd be hundreds of stores nationwide that, that do that kind of business. Yeah, and, and for our listeners, can you give us a little idea of the scale of eBags? I don't want you to, you know, divulge any confidential information, but um, maybe your IR rank or whatever you're comfortable letting us know kind of how, how big is the scale of e-bags at this point? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, uh, uh, you know, 110 people. And, and as I said, you know, 25 million bags, I mean, I mean something, uh, 
that I'm just as proud of is that we have 3.2 million customer reviews. So it's a big part of the DNA of eBags.com of, of leaving that virtual post-it note. And, you know, from the IR, we're in that kind of 100 to 150 range, kind of depending on the year. Mm-hmm. But we are a pure play, which is, you know, a critical part of this. We don't have stores. Uh, uh, so, you know, to kind of get that PR and, and – um, kind of help offset some of the expenses, uh, you know, we don't get traffic in the door, you know, we don't eat. And uh, uh, so it's a, it's a constant survival for us. It's, it's, uh, I mean, we just had a meeting today with our executive team and, you know, the primary message was, you know, we need to stay hungry. We need to be paranoid. I, I mean, this thing can change. And you mentioned it, Scott, early, you know, there are, things that can happen that are out of our control that can pop up. Uh, so cash for us, cash is king. We have no debt and uh, we don't plan on raising any more money. So we've got to really uh, live within our means. But there's a lot of people out there doing some crazy things from a marketing standpoint or willing to lose uh, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and that's an area where we're just uh, – it, I actually love it, and we bring people on that accept that challenge and relish it. Uh, but it, it, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty competitive right now. But like you mentioned, I could have said that any of the years uh, in any of the past 18 years. Peter, you know, I wanted to ask a question. You, you mentioned that you're a pure play, and you've been a pure play for more than 15 years it's interesting because a lot of the talk today is pretty negative on pure plays. I mean, you've got uh, Scott Galloway at L2, you know, and he, he's, he's got a whole campaign around rest in peace, pure play. And you've got a bunch of these buzzy new companies like Warby Parker or Bonobos that, you know, or Nasty Gal or, you know, even I think Blue Nile is now opening some stores. Like it's a big trend that these pure plays are shifting to stores and then, of course, you have a couple of huge pure plays that flamed out. You have like the fab.com and, you know, guilt just sold for, you know, a disappointing uh, valuation. And, and so I think there's this this buzz that like, hey, pure play, you know, isn't a long term sustainable model or maybe it used to be and it's it's time has come. And it always drives me nuts when I hear that because I feel like. You're you're the best example, but there's a bunch of people in your class that are longtime pure plays that have been able to grow based on their own revenues. Uh, and I, I'm just curious what what's your take on the whole viability of the pure play model? Well, obviously, uh, you know, with what we do, I, it depends. Honestly, it depends on the category. It depends on products. It depends on factors such as uh, you know, we're fortunate in that for the most part people don't uh want to need to try it on it's it's a piece of luggage it's a kid's backpacks it's a soccer bag on and on and on uh so our return rate is very low and so really i think it lays out well for us to be a pure play in that uh we really feel like uh you know we want to be I mean, to have 70,000 bags and accessories on our site, and we'll probably pass uh, 100,000 in the next 100,000 products in the next 120 days and and venture out into uh, even doubling that in the next year or two. And um, we really feel like, you know, from a – we want to be a a, um, house of brands as well as uh, something, if you're in, you know, for us, it's it's travel and fashion. Uh, if you want a bag or something related to travel and the travel experience, go to eBags. And no store can have the assortment and selection that we have. You know, pick, picking a brand, uh, one of our better brands is Tumi. It's a premium a luggage and, and a business case line. We'll carry 500 plus pieces of Tumi. And a typical store, because of physical space in our, in our, uh, in luggage or business cases, they may carry 10 pieces of Tumi, maybe 15 if they're lucky. And we have over 500. So, uh, you know, somebody that, that's where we love where we are in the space. It, it lines up quite well, I think, for long-term viability. And uh, there's really no store out there. I mean, obviously, you've got the bookseller in Seattle that does a great job. 
they've got a broad and vast assortment. But, uh, you know, for what we do in our category, there's a lot of brands actually that don't want to go down that path. Uh, let's just say the marketplace path. And so we, we demonstrate to them that we're a specialty store interested in travel and fashion. And uh, that really resonates, especially with brick and mortar, uh, you know, um, having some challenging times right now. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, when, within our space, um, retail is still – uh, around 10% online, so 90% brick and mortar, and yet you have stores closing every month in, in our category, and I think it's only going to accelerate. Uh, so we really love where we're positioned, and I think a lot of categories can say the same thing. And to your point, Jason, on, on brick and mortar, it just isn't it, – it's not – you have to really focus on something and focus on something that you're you're excellent at, and uh, I don't think brick and mortar is an area for us today that um, that we should be uh, venturing into. I think there's so many other opportunities out there within the ecosystem of what we're already uh, working on. Cool. The um, one follow up on the pure play thing. So. Amazon's invested, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars in their fulfillment center. And you guys don't have a fulfillment center. Do you ever, does it ever feel like um, doing the drop ship thing that you don't have control over that customer experience and that's a negative? You know, I think it gets down to, are you uh, getting products to people in a timely manner? And with our, uh, you know, we have 700 brands, as I mentioned, uh, the average product leaves that door uh, in 0.7 days. So within a day, uh, our goods are out the door. We actually spent some time, uh, one of our board members uh, did a tour of Zappos and came back. It's, it, at the time, it was 17 football fields, 800 employees, and came back and said, it's unbelievable uh, what they have, you know, we should move to that model. And it, it, I remember in the board meeting saying, you know, what would we gain? It already goes out the door in six hours. Okay. So we would gain maybe two hours if we're really, really good. And, and so for us, that part of it, um, you know, I don't feel, I, I think that's the primary, uh, part of this. And, the other part of it is, you know, a lot of our products, they, they actually are shipped from Asia in the boxes that gets delivered to the customer. So in a lot of cases, just thinking in a piece of luggage, we, we just put a label on it and our, our brands do and then ship it to the customer. So there isn't – it's in a box that may say to me, Samsonite or Delsay. Or, uh, and so that experience is, you know uh, – it probably could be better, to your point, Scott. But I think uh, we just have to make some choices and and, uh, and go that route. Now, that being said, I will say our our number one brand on our site is actually our own private label branded eBags. It's twenty four percent of units and twenty percent of revenue. It's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is we're product guys. When we started eBags, that's what we did at Samsonite, and we just love. We love product, and we just uh, I really told the team, make product that we, you would want to carry. And it actually, and right as we started the business, we got into it, so it's not like it's the last a couple years. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, it's really uh, built out this competitive moat that's a big reason why we're as profitable as we are and that we have some kind of staying power uh, within the space. That, that's good to hear because Jason and I um, both get asked by a lot of what I would call multi-brand retailers. In other words, like a Macy's or something that doesn't really have their own brands. Um, you know, what one of the best strategies they can do. And, and I always go back to private label. And earlier in the show, uh, in the news segment, we talked about some of the stuff Amazon's doing there. So it, it's interesting to hear that that's such a large part of, of what you guys are doing. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, unsponsored ad here. I uh, love the ship, the, uh, the cubes, the packing cubes you guys do. My wife um, loves to organize and she's like a huge fan of, of the e-bags packing system there. What, one other thing um, I wanted to just kind of introduce uh, you introduced me to shop.org. Uh, I've been going to the summit and uh, really enjoying the summit uh, at 
when I was earlier in e-commerce, so I didn't really kind of understand that there's an organization behind the summit uh, that we all go to in the fall. Uh, you introduced me to that, and uh, you were one of the early folks there, and uh, we're all three of us are on the board there. So we'd love to hear how you got involved with shock.org and how you describe it to folks. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, this industry uh, that we're we're in, uh, online retail and digital retail and so forth, it is made up of some amazing people, of some amazingly bright people. Um, and, but it's also we're under uh, we're undergoing so many challenges and it's changing so fast. I mean, who, you weren't talking about uh, chat commerce and. And even uh, now with what's going on with Facebook Messenger and all Snapchat and, and so forth. Uh, so sometimes you need a network of people that you can reach out to to compare notes uh, and share stories and really pick their brain. There's, you know, we're really good at drop shipping. So I'll field some calls from people you know, interested in getting into drop shipping. Other people more maybe have more expertise in, in social media marketing or some other areas. And, and, um, but you know, the thing that about shop.org, you know, it's a, it's really a trade association made up of a community of people within the digital, uh, retail space, uh, that gets together several times a year, uh, but also shop.org provides uh, a thought leadership pieces, whether it's um, a think tank and white papers, research, uh, several conferences, and also works on the behalf of retail. It's part of National Retail Federation, NRF, as a team in Washington, D.C., working on issues important to all of retail, not only digital, with things like, uh, you know, uh, trying to promote legislation to limit patent trolls and, and things like that. So, but the, the big part of it is, uh, you know, providing a, a space where you can learn from others, but also uh, network. And it, as always happens, you end up uh, developing pretty strong friendships as well, which, which makes it even more enjoyable. I'm uh, the new guy amongst the three of us. I think it, at shop.org. Um, but I would, I would just absolutely echo that one of my favorite parts is the camaraderie and the, the opportunity to network and, and, uh, you know, share, a, in an adult beverage with folks that face a lot of the same challenges and opportunities every day that we do. And inevitably, when you get together with other e-commerce folks and you start having conversations, the topics pretty quickly turn to, the things that are keeping you up at night or the things that the new new trends that are, you know, it, that you're most excited about in terms of upcoming opportunities. And so I wanted to ask if, you know, what was kind of front and foremost in your mind right now in terms of new new trends or new new challenges in, in the e-commerce space? Well, I think a challenge that all of us are facing and uh, I know we're we're all getting our arms around it, but it's um, it is a challenge, and that's the move towards mobile and smartphones. And uh, you know, it's not a surprise. We all use them in our personal life, but uh, I, I think retail, frankly, was caught flat-footed. Uh, you know, you you have Open Table and Uber and so many other apps that were built for the smartphone. And I think with retail, uh, you know, I mean, two years ago, our traffic would have been uh, single digits coming in on smartphones. So, you know, you you knew it was coming, the wave was coming, but there's just so many other things popping that you need to uh, put your resources towards. Um, we're really, actually really happy with our mobile experience, but it's, it's kind of one of those, uh, you just need to continue to invest and spend the resources and when you think uh you've got it figured out you know something else comes along i mean uh you know right now and a great example is uh you know the big obstacle mobile is payments and you know credit card and so forth and and obviously paypal is a great provider you know helping with mobile and it's a big part of our mobile efforts but there's other wallets popping up chase pay and masterpass and visa etc and and um you know i know you guys have talked about that in the past of like that's a big challenge of okay where who do you partner with where do you play on a mobile device how, how does that all uh, how does that all work when you only have so much space and so much real estate so i think with uh mobile is uh 
you know, I, I know in the past you guys have uh, have talked about kind of average conversion rates. And if you just said, you know, a PC is is uh, three or four percent and tablets, you know, two and a half to three percent and mobile is one, one, if not one and a half percent, you know, as your traffic continues to grow towards mobile and it could be up uh, 50, 60 percent year over year. Well, that means your your weighted average conversion rates uh are under some pressure and uh, a lot of times uh, you know you think about 100 people coming to your site and only one or two purchasing well with whether that's Google or Facebook or whatever affiliate partner you have that's that's pretty expensive traffic if you're only getting a 2% conversion that's a huge challenge that I think a lot of people are facing and the other part of that that people don't talk about is that usually you know on a PC we'll get 1.5 units per order and on a on mobile it's really kind of one and done it's about 1.1 and and so you have your uh, average basket size lower so conversion rates lower basket size lower so you really need to just kind of think through how to optimize uh, mobile and uh, it's i think we're all slowly figuring it out i mean our our mobile sales uh, actually our traffic last month up 40%, but our mobile sales are up 70%. So we're going in the right direction, really feel good about it. And we always are thinking if we're redesigning parts of the site, it's mobile first because then PC will uh, will all fall behind. And then I think, um, you know, I think another trend uh, that I think is interesting is, um, you know, you've got, uh, brick and mortar, as well as brands uh, developing websites, and those are obviously competitors. But I'm going to focus just on the brands. I think an interesting trend is that the brands are realizing, hey, building and maintaining and and keeping the website uh, uh, up to speed is not uh, for the faint of heart. It's super expensive. You need expensive uh, personnel. Uh, the whole resource requirements uh, of a brand. I mean, it's one thing for a retailer. They're kind of familiar with the direct marketing model. But for brands that kind of went into it maybe two, three, five, eight years ago and now are realizing there's what I was just talking about with mobile and uh, and all the resources required, it's it's really a challenge, and then they're under pressure for their own brick-and-mortar stores that many brands, uh, you know, bid off. And now they're looking at it, saying, "Gosh, I got my um, my my website. Should I update that? Should I send people into my stores? Should I have returns into stores?" And I I think uh, a lot of retailers as well as brands are really being challenged right now. Uh, so those are some, some key challenges and opportunities I think we all face. Yeah. You know, Peter, the brands going direct is, is really interesting because frankly, a lot of my clients are those brands that either, you know, already went direct or, you know, maybe they're in a, a category of retail that's kind of a digital laggard and they're just now talking or thinking about going direct. And it's funny because my, my opening line is usually, Hey, you're always going to be the worst place to buy your product. That you know you're you're not going to have any of those the the third party accessories or add on sales that that consumers want. You're going to be the only retailer on the planet that perfectly complies with Map, and that you know in general there's a small subset of users that want to buy direct from you, and and you know it certainly makes sense to capitalize on those users, but that you're not going to materially hurt your wholesale partner's business. And I'm I'm just curious from your perspective. Is that how you feel like when Tumi goes live and starts selling bags through their own site, which I think they did a couple of years ago, like, did you look at that as a, you know, oh, a cute effort from Tumi and maybe it, it taught Tumi to be a little more sensitive to some of the, the content issues that, that make them a better partner for you? Or, or did you feel like that was a material threat to your business? Well, you know, we actually ran Tumi's website for them globally, US, UK, Germany, and Japan, uh, between 2002 and 2010. So we had a great eight-year run uh, with with Toomey. And then they said, you know, as it was growing, and they said, you know what, we want it's time for us to take it on our own. And uh, I, 
I think even and and it's been a challenge. It really has been a challenge. Like a lot of brands, they have to decide: uh, does the brand, uh, does the website exhibit the, uh, the brand essence, or are we in this to have e-commerce and generate revenue? And there's that continuum they have to decide. And I think for a long time, to me, kind of came out of the shoot and said. Uh, it, we need to promote the brand to me. This is part of going public and so forth. But then realized, gosh, our sales are not nearly as strong as we thought they could be. And uh, plus, plus building out a global uh, e-commerce effort, multiple countries, it, it's – and then you've got uh, changing marketing messages, uh, you know, in, in – 15 or 10 or 20 different sites, languages, marketing messages, all the same night. It's pretty challenging to do that for somebody like a brand like Toomey. We don't, um, to your original question, uh, you know, we just think of that as, hey, Toomey's going to get into it or Samsonite or or so forth. Uh, But sure enough, I, I know they're great partners of ours and we actually talk to uh, uh, to them about some of the challenges, and I I know they're scratching their heads just like some others, saying, "By the way, this is this was something, especially when you're talking about global websites, uh, it's something uh, that's pretty challenging for them." And I think in a lot of cases, they end up uh, somebody at the top ends up saying, uh, "You know what? We need to go back to making great product and not uh, pretend we're a technology company." And then they call you, Jason, <laughs> to get it fixed. And we're more than happy to pretend to be a technology company on their behalf. Exactly. Cool. We're, we're up against time, but I have two kind of lightning round questions to ask you. Um, one of the things that's fun about e-commerce is there's always some weird thing that you would have never guessed. Um, so, for example, when we look at our data, we always see these weird correlations between people buying things that you would never think those would go together. Any insights like that, like uh, from from your time at eBags, of you know strange insights that you found of consumer behavior? You know, I think um, you know, like what there's something happening now, which is I think pretty interesting in that the power brands are are not doing as well as um, as one might think and what i mean by that is uh, you know think about kind of anchor store brands brands you would find in a macy's nordstrom uh bloomingdales etc are are uh, really uh, I think uh, going undergoing some pressure, and you you've seen it in like the designer handbag category with Michael Kors and Coach uh, posting some numbers which were pretty challenging over the last uh, three to five years. And what happens then is you've got uh, the thing that I love about it is uh, you've got kind of these small brands that, given the light of day, actually do really well. Like on our site, it could be Osprey backpacks, Fall Raven backpacks, very kind of cool products that now then we can show to the world of, hey, you probably wouldn't know where to find this in Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco, but you can click a button and have this uh, sent directly to you. Cool. We call it the – on the Jason Scott show, we call it the hoverboard effect, kind of the (laughs) – the disimportanting of brands. Uh, one last one, um, and I know this is hard to answer quickly, but maybe um, you don't survive 17 years in business without really investing a lot in the culture of your business. And, and I've I've been to eBags and seen, you know, a lot of the, you invest personally a lot of your time as a founder into the culture of the company. Um, so if there's listeners out there and maybe they're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, any quick tips on how you keep that culture and and calcify it and, and, and all that kind of thing? Well, I think it starts with, uh, you know, once you lock into a, a solid business model, then uh, you hire great people, don't skimp uh, on people. Um, and it's all about, I mean, getting people that have a history of success and then letting them run with, of course, guidelines but I, I think on our end, we uh, were super transparent. 
We we reveal all PL, we reveal cash on a monthly basis and say, look at we're all in this together. Uh, every employee gets stock ownership in the company, so we're all owners and we think in terms of uh, treat the customer as you would want to be treated and and, you know, we just have things to, I mean, a lot of people do with, you know, dogs in the office and things like that, but just really making it a great place to work and making it fun. We're there for 10, 12 hours a day in a lot of, in a lot of cases and just having to be just like, have it be a place that is fun, not so serious, but the people that are really to work hard and, and, uh, and have fantastic teamwork and, you know, you just have to make it fun for people. Otherwise, there's a lot of other options out there in the world. Very cool, Peter. And I know you're based in Denver, Colorado. Is it safe to say you're always on the lookout for great e-commerce talent? Absolutely. It, it's really challenging, I think, finding uh, over-the-top talent. It's. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest challenges. It is not necessarily somebody that gets straight A's in school. It's why I even talked about like a history of success of, of doing things that maybe are not the, you know, right down the fairway all the time is it can be, a, it's okay to be a little bit quirky because we're doing things that people have never done before uh, in, in this space. And so you need people willing to take risks and you, you know, you can't slap the wrist if they fail, if they fail a second, third, fourth time. Yeah, absolutely. You need to set people down, but uh, you want people that are willing to get out there and, and make a calculated risk. That makes perfect sense, Peter. Well, listen, that is all the time we have for today, but I want to remind everyone that our, our guest today has been Peter Cobb, who is one of the co-founders of eBags. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. I think your Twitter handle is uh, at Peter Cobb, C-O-B-B. And with that, I will say until next week, happy shopping. And thanks very much to all our listeners. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 